0: Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary
1: market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Patrick Ballard. Patrick has a unique background and set of experiences. He currently owns a renovation and property flipping company here in Calgary. He got his construction skills by renovating his own restaurants and bars that hosted live musics and bands. He also owned a highly productive remediation abatement company. Top of all this, he's also a musician. I definitely enjoyed my conversation with Patrick, and I think you'll enjoy the show. Hey, Patrick, I just want to welcome you to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. How's it going today? Good,
0: hey man. How are
1: you? Doing good. Yeah, well, it's a little bit freezing outside, but other than that, it's good. <laughs> Can we start off the show by you just telling our listeners about yourself and how you got into real estate investing, flipping?
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on, by the way. I've always been interested in rentals for sure. And to go back further, I've always been interested in business. So it's a perfect combo. I'm a bit of an artsy fartsy fellow as well. I'm sort of a musician style. I love the art and craft of design. I love building with my hands, all those sort of things. So for me personal, the long short is I'm well suited for this type of business. Probably the first time I ever did a reno, I was uh, sort of come from the restaurant business. Um, My first few jobs were cooking and then serving and then managing the restaurant business. But as I moved along that business, you always a you always tend to have a second job when you're a server and a cook. It's just the way it is. It doesn't pay enough or just maybe that's the culture of it. So I always did construction jobs on the side. But ultimately, that didn't really attract me very much to the business because those types of jobs are garbage, right? You end up doing the the donkey jobs, which you got to do your time. But that's what got me excited about it. Uh, And then I I got into a position where I was uh, a small partner and a manager in a a restaurant slash pub. And uh, the guy basically just dropped off the keys. It was quite shocking. I went from like a, you know a corporate environment where I had most of my training and enjoyed it thoroughly, you know, where it's got structured and you've got all these rules and you've got sort of a process for almost everything that exists. You just don't know what you don't know. So I went to this fellow, and he's like, "Okay, cool." He got a bunch of money, and he just wanted to run this this uh, unit better than it was being run. Got rid of the other person. Said, "I'll give you some shares if you come in here and do this." And just basically dropped off the keys. And I mean, literally, I did, the first three months, I didn't see him. Like, I didn't even see the guy. Like, I was like, I'm like, oh, what's this visa thing I have to pay? And you know, crazy. I was like, ah, which, which I loved. I have to be clear. I loved it. I loved getting that responsibility, but it was quite shocking. But one of the things that, that happened over the course of the three and a half years that I was doing that project was the renovations also end up on you. Right. Because at the end of the day, it's particularly in a restaurant, it's a very nickel and dime business. So if that bar wears out, you just don't go in and, and get a hundred thousand dollars to redo it like the big guys do. As a little guy, you just have to fix it. <laughs> so, you know, which is, yeah, it's, it's kind of an opportunity for a guy like me. because I'm like, OK, so, you know, Google was new at the time. Uh, actually, at the time, I think it was called there was another one. The first search engine hot maybe it was. Anyway, so I was able to Google some stuff, and there's stuff online, and I was able to sort of learn some basic framing, a lot of millwork, because you end up doing that in, the, um, in restaurants, obviously, and uh, plumbing and a little electrical and all that sort of stuff. So my original foray into doing renovations was through restaurants, right? Necessity is the mother of all learning. And it sort of was that thing where I was like, you got to do this. I'm like, all right. But I learned that I liked it, particularly uh, with restaurants, because there's colors and there's design and there's, you know, pictures and, and all those things. So my original uh, taste of it was in that. And then to fast forward, make a long story short. So
1: if I could just uh, jump in, I find it super fascinating. So most people, they delve into, you know, it's usually residential, maybe they owned a property or a rental, and then they start to learn how to fix things. But for you to learn it in a restaurant environment, I find it super fascinating. And then obviously, you had to learn all the other areas as well. So he obviously saw something in you. He knew you could take care of it and trust you, right? To give you that kind yeah. of responsibility. Yeah.
0: And you know, and, and fortunate as well, when I had a partner with me uh, for the first year and a half of that project. And he was very, very, very good at that as well. So you got, I had confidence beside me who he was able to sort of help me as well. But yeah, like it is an interesting, like who, who comes through that path? Well,
1: it's very and, rare. I yeah. would say super rare for someone to get, you know, their construction experience in that environment.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's fine. And I guess it's just because I wanted to, but there it is, right? Like at the end of the day, you do the stuff you want to do. That's kind of who we are. So, and then I ended up just through fast forward to about, I don't know, 2006. I
1: started a company with uh, another fella, and uh, we it was a construction,
0: millwork, and hazmat company. And that went decently. And then on the side, we were like, let's flip some houses. So uh, we did renovations as well and had good experience by then and owned a company. And then we did our first flip together back in, oh, I
1: don't know, sometimes. And and how did you end up kind of switching uh, pivoting, I guess, from the restaurant and into this construction hazmat company?
0: So I'm a musician. Uh, That deal I was talking about for three years in that restaurant came to a head where either I could buy out the partner with his financing, or I could just sort of take some money and leave. And at the time I was living, not in Calgary, I was living in a town where there wasn't a lot of opportunity for music. Eyes at the time I was 26 and I'm like, I got to try something. So I just sold out and, um, I moved to Calgary Now I moved to Calgary to do music and was able to do that. But I also had a job in the restaurant industry to support that maybe because I got spoiled running my own place. I just got to the point I moved here in 2000 at the point at 2005 or four when I was just like, oh, I can't do the restaurant thing anymore. You know, I just, I I shouldn't say thing. I just couldn't find myself in the position I wanted where I was uh, in control at the top ish and able to sort of uh, do the music as well. So I just, at one point I I quit the job and I just said, I'm not going to get another job a until it's not in the restaurant industry because I needed a break at the time. I felt like it was permanent, but I needed a break in hindsight and B until I find great humans to work with. Interesting. And and I did end up meeting a really great human who invited me into a hazmat business of all things. And (laughs) I'll train you, but he was a great dude. And I'm like, yeah, if I get to work with you and a couple other guys that I had met, I'm like, yeah. So I ended up going into that business, made some money. I was able to help that company develop, made some money off the shares that we were offered and then bought a restaurant again.
1: <laughs> After it went back into restaurant. Yeah. And then can we just touch on the construction company and the hazmat? So you guys were doing like remediation that type of stuff uh, with yeah. that company? Yeah. So so the
0: company that I worked for taught me how to do contracting and hazmat and then i actually brought renovations into their company they weren't doing them but at the time like we'd have customers like sears who we would take all the hazmat out like the asbestos the mold or whatever was in there but then the flip side they had nobody to finish and i'm like well i don't think that i can't do this so i asked the the big boss of vancouver if i could try it and we ended up getting that contract and then the company started doing more contracting services at least when i was there i'm not sure if they do anymore. So Amazing. I was able to do that through a large company and get some really good experience doing some bigger commercial, bigger, medium sized commercial stuff.
1: Yeah. And then you guys would do abatement type stuff as well, like asbestos removal that yeah. kind of stuff.
0: Emergency response, asbestos removal. This was a company I didn't own. And everything from like viral cleanups in hospitals um, to like anything that you just don't touch that's not blood and guts is essentially what that company did.
1: Wow. That can be a tough industry, right? Because I mean, a lot of times it's a high turnover, you're employing people that maybe are, you know, not the easiest to employ. So you would, you would have learned a lot of things from doing that as well.
0: Yeah, you know, and you know, the first thing I learned in, in hazmat was that there was no formal trade. And I find that industries without formal trades end up sort of having a lot of trouble attracting the right people, because who are you attracting, you don't have a formal trade. So one of the first things we did in that company, in that other fellow that I was talking about, we just we went in and created a program, a training program and a training program for hazmat in that company. But yeah, you, you nailed it on the head. I don't think it's the people. It's just that because there's no there's nothing to grip onto. What is this that I do? What, how do I get trained? How do I how do I grow? So there's industries like that that really fall between the cracks where there's no there's no trade, but it is a trade. It's tricky. So you're right. It's very hard because it's specific. And there, it's not you know a lot of people just hire whoever, and then you hire whoever, and you get whatever.
1: Yeah, you know? <laughs> for sure. And then you went from there, and you pivoted back into the restaurant. Can we just briefly touch on that, and then we're just going to jump into the flipping side of things? Yeah. So I made a buck. The fellow who hired me, him and I partnered up to. Uh, we're like, let's just get back in the industry. Let's get back in the restaurants. We bought a small pub. And we're able to
0: just thread together some financing. Like, I mean, thread it together. I don't know how I did it looking back. <laughs> I don't, I, we both look back like,
1: eh, how did we
0: do that? And then we ended up starting that up and then sort of added a live music component to it. So we had a live music pub. And then I quit that business and started doing that pub full-time. And again, doing a ton of renos because it was a garbage reno. Like it was a terrible looking pub. So again, back into renos. Again, I, just every weekend, you know,
1: we're yeah, yep. and yeah, so I was in there once for beers and it was quite nice when I was in there.
0: Well, you know, you got the second iteration, and that one I we actually got to build from scratch. We demoed the whole place, and it was just a wonderful experience. We got to build it exactly how
1: we wanted to. So I for see. That. I loved it. I loved that building. Yeah, no, it was beautiful inside for sure. Yeah, definitely a really diverse you know experience and skill set. And then now you've taken that and you're kind of started your own construction flip company, right? Or
0: yeah, so. One step in between there is my partner and I who bought that pub, we decided that the pub wasn't big enough to make, you know, what we would consider good streams of income. So we started up a renovation company on the side together. And so we did that restaurant in the renovation company, that company grew pretty quick. And then we added Hazmat to it. And then we added Millworks to it. And in that company, that's when we started flipping houses on the side as well.
1: Yeah. Interesting. And then obviously the skills of working with people and managing them, that kind of stuff you would have, you know, you've kind of all those years, you, you're you continually doing that, right?
0: You know, and it's funny you'd say that because I feel really lucky to have been in the restaurant industry in that facet, like really getting through everything from dishwasher to managing, because you're really forced to learn different personalities from your, your cooks, to your servers, to your managers, to your customers, right? And to your suppliers. And I, I honestly think that it's such a good thing to have going into construction. Because construction is one of those things, although they have traits, they also, a lot of people just don't take it seriously. And it's a very serious business. Like it is a very, to do it right, man, it is complicated. You have to work with humans and you have to work with personalities. And a lot of the worker types in the construction business are not the types that are really predisposed to, you know, a scholastic way of thinking. They just, they're really more work with my hands. That doesn't make them smarter or less intelligent. It's just the way that they are. They're more hands-on people. They're more, you know, aggressive type personalities. I'm sure a personality profiler could nail it better than me, but that's what I've learned over the years. And you almost have to be better with people. You have to understand them more. You have to really pay attention in order to get the best out of them,
1: I think. And then probably lacking some of the communication, you know, that people that work in different industries would likely have, you oh. know, that. Yeah, for sure. The
0: long short of that one is we had a business together. We got out of it about four years ago. And then I've just been on my own flipping houses and doing renovations since then.
1: Awesome. Let's jump back now to your first flip. You kind of you know, tell the listeners what that was like, how long ago it was, and how did it turn out? Some maybe lessons learned?
0: Oh, totally. Lots of lessons learned. One thing I learned is that renovation skills isn't all it takes to flip a house. The, uh, that house, we went in on the side, like I said, and we went in with another partner on that. So there's three of us. And, uh, at the end of the job, we made $40,000. I remember that. I can't remember the buying the sell. You know, my opinion is we didn't really make 40,000 because the partner we had at the time was all talk. He'd show up. We wouldn't do any work. Uh, he wouldn't manage trades. I uh, wouldn't do the stuff that he had promised to do on the job. So then my par- other partner and I, who's in the restaurant, the other business, uh, Doug, he was great. He's like, let's just go in and do it. Well, the, you know, here we are working 60, 70 hours a week in our other two businesses. And we're like, let's just go in on the weekends and do all the trades <laughs> because we had to, like it had just failed. This guy wasn't working. We said, we'll pay you. We'll partner with you. We'll split three ways. You run the trades and do some work and we'll, we'll finance this side of it. And then, you know, some other stuff. But anyways, the, the bottom fell out on that. So yeah, in our spare time, <laughs> I love saying that to business people in my spare time, yeah, which yeah. you didn't have. <laughs> yeah, and if, you, if you don't laugh and someone says in my spare time, you're not a business person.
1: There
0: <laughs> is no spare time. Uh, so in our spare time we just went in on the weekends did all the electrical all the plumbing all the we just basically did it all so I've never lost money on a flip to date but I did lose time and I lost a lot of time on that because a it took too long because we had to do it on evenings and weekends that cost you money obviously on your borrow and then of course like if you're really putting that much time in are you making money Like, so we split 40 grand three ways at the end of like six months of like three, (laughs) four hours, right? Like, wow, I bought myself a job I didn't need, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure.
0: But, you know, I don't regret it. We knew it wasn't going to be perfect going in. You just don't know what you don't know.
1: For sure. And then how long did you, because it it sounds like there was a lot of learning there. Did you take a break and and reposition yourself or do the next one differently?
0: Yeah, yeah, we took a break for sure. (laughs) 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 Yeah, after that, we were like... Well, you know, I can make $3 an hour doing this, or I can make X amount of dollars an hour focusing on their other businesses. So we sort of went back to that for a while. Uh, We did home rentals, right? So we continue to do that stuff. But I didn't start flipping again until three years ago when I exited that business.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then back when you did the flip, did the market kind of work with you or against you? Uh, How was the market at the time?
0: It was just stale. It was just stable, right? So, so, you know, it's easier in hindsight. That's the best market to do a flip in the best. When your uh, commodity prices are somewhat stable and your uh, housing prices are stable. So meaning like your, your wood's not going to go up 400% in three months uh, your labor is not going to go up and the housing prices are somewhat predictable. Those markets, you can also get deals, right? Like you can actually get deals on houses and stable markets from my experience so far, and I bought and sold houses. I haven't flipped as well. I, my experience is that stable markets are the easiest to flip in just flat markets.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. Cause there's, Obviously, I guess from stepping back you kind of sometimes we think an appreciating markets better because if your rentals delayed or your flips delayed you know your house is continually you know like if it's really hot those type of markets a delay you can still make more money in the yeah. end yeah but there's other factors that play into that too right sure yeah
0: I mean if the market is just going up obviously but we say that like we can predict it right like you don't right. know Calgary next week if it's going up you know like we can <laughs> say that. Like you're looking back, yeah. of course, like if you could look back, you say, if that market's going up, I'm going to buy low and sell high. No question. But stable markets are easier to predict. That's all I'm trying to say. For um, if, sure. If you've got a good sense or got someone like you on your team who can help us predict what's going on in the market, then we can do a lot better. There's no question. But, you know, the last three, well, even since 2015, the commodities have been pretty shaky at best, particularly during COVID, it went, it was insane. Right. So, but then the market went up, but then it went down, but then it went up, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not complaining. I'm just saying those, that was a simple market in that way. Everything that I bid on that job and all the numbers I did were almost spot on minus the fact I had to do all the work.
1: Yeah. And the other thing, I guess the negative about a really hot appreciating market is it's tough to get a deal and do your due diligence and maybe uh, your buy-in is going to be higher too, typically, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, you would probably have a better sense of me, but my experience with that has been that like appreciating markets, people buy garbage houses for way over price. And we, as flippers, buy garbage houses. Otherwise, we wouldn't flip, you know? So... I shouldn't say garbage, that's probably insulting, but at the end of the day, houses that are not well taken care of are are particular. For me, they're great. That's what I want. That's my best case scenario is if a house has been, all the bones are in shape, but everything's just hasn't been renovated and left. And and in appreciating markets, you get a bit of a lineup for those houses. You have to have a good realtor to get you in line fast and get the deal done fast. So, and like, we can talk about that later, but I'm I'm a big fan of realtors. A lot of people try and skip them. Uh, That's not your job. Unless you are a realtor who's flipping, use a realtor. Yeah, yeah. And a good one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's good advice. And then so because of your restoration experience, do you use that now? So if you're going to do a renovation, say on a 50s house, 60s house, that may have asbestos, are you doing the samples and, and then doing that stuff yourself?
0: Oh yeah. So rules and regulations in Calgary. Um, if you pull a permit, you have to first thing you have to do is check anything that you're impacting and make sure it doesn't have asbestos. If you don't pull a permit, there's nothing stopping you, but you should asbestos is real it's a real threat and it should be treated like that some products with asbestos are less dangerous than others but at the end of the day don't underplay asbestos you don't you don't want that stuff in your lungs so for me i'll just go out like if i'm not doing a permit on a house because there's no permit i can do on it i'm just doing say a rip reno and run you just rip it out reno and run sort of thing fast which has no wall movements no you know permittable activities uh, I'll still just go in and the areas that I'm going to impact that I know have best is particularly drywall, stipple, those are your sort of major ones in houses. Uh, and then sometimes you'll find a little bit of flooring that has it underneath old flooring. Uh, yeah, you just grab a sample, go down. You can just Google people who test asbestos. You go down and spend a couple hundred bucks and they'll tell you if it's in it or not. If it's a non-permitted job as a homeowner, you can do it yourself. You just have to do it properly and please do it properly. It's not that expensive. Like it costs you money, but it's, it's worth It's what I'm trying to say you have to get the proper mask, contain it properly. You can rent some machines that, that help you filter the air. If you're going to do it on your own, make sure you talk to someone who's done it before, or make sure you watch a lot of videos, do it right. Or you pay a company to do it. For uh-huh. sure but you should always test. It's just, it's not worth it. Like I've, and you know, let's be honest here. There's a lot of people out there, you know, they talk tough and then when it comes down to it, they just, Oh yeah, I took out that wall. Actually that bad partner that I had on the flip house, he did that. He did that on a house that I renovated for him. I'm like, we got to get this done properly. And overnight he ripped out the whole wall. It's like, well, it's done now. I'm like, well, I'm not going in there anymore until you we get there and clean it. So it's a real threat. It doesn't have to be as expensive as everybody thinks, but budget for asbestos. Just budget for it. Use your head, budget for asbestos. You don't want that stuff in your lungs. You don't want to pass it on to somebody else who you renovate the house for.
1: For sure. And what can you throw out any sort of numbers? I know it changes on the scope of the job, but if, if you were moving a wall and it did have asbestos, or, or maybe you wanted to go with the smooth ceiling on a reno, and you're going to be hands-off. What kind of numbers do you think companies would be charging for that?
0: Yeah, like let's say you just have an average living room and a thousand square foot bungalow sort of thing, and you want to get the stipple out of the ceiling, you're going to pay, you're going to pay a rental company anywhere from three to five thousand dollars to do it. If you have asbestos insulation in your attic uh and you're dead set on removing it, which by the way, you don't have to remove it, you can cover it and you can just leave it. It's actually great insulation, but a lot of people like to remove it. Um, you're going to talk about anywhere from eight to $15,000 to get that out of your attic properly. Uh, it can be cheaper if you're going to drop the ceiling because then they don't have to get up there and crawl around on their bellies to get it out. Floors like that linoleum floor, if you have a linoleum floor, let's say in a kitchen or something like that, it's probably around $3,000 to get rid of it through a company. So, I mean, it's real numbers. And if you don't budget for them, you're going to regret it, or you're going to end up doing it and getting the stuff in your lungs or your workers' lungs.
1: Yeah, for sure. And it can be in the, I remember we talked before, and it can be in the the stucco on the outside of the house as well, right? It's not just in the inside.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, asbestos was used in over a 1,000 building materials from 1940 till 1983. So, like, it was a great product. It had a binding and an insulative quality to it. So, like, they used to put it in drywall mud. It's in drywall joint compounds. So it's not in the board. It's in the mud that's on the seams. But you have to remove it all as though it's it's in the, as though it's all, all over it because you can't really tell where the mud is right so when you remove drywall that has asbestos in it it's not the actual board but it is in the mud and what they used to do this is your worst case nightmare scenario is these poor guys would have buckets of dry asbestos they'd lift it up and put it in the mud and then mix it so they have this dry stuff right in front of their mouth wow pouring it in mixing it pouring it, and mixing it so that was just a real unfortunate uh, time period where people just didn't know
1: didn't know the uh, hazard yeah
0: yeah i mean like if you want to talk about like it it can be in roof shingles sometimes it's pretty rare for um residential because they're all torn off by now it just don't last that long it can be in um stucco on the exterior for sure it can even be in um some of the cement board it can be in lath and plaster you'll see in the early early part of the century see a lot of lath and plaster it's even in that sometimes but that's pretty rare but it can be um, it's yeah. in a lot of the linoleum from anything before the 80s. It's actually the paper underneath the plastic that it's in. It's in the um, floor tiles you see, nine by nine floor mm-hmm. tiles is very commonly in, but it can be in 12 by 12 as well. And these are, sorry, these aren't um, ceramic floor tiles or porcelain. These are like the um, uh, vinyl composite tile sort of thing or linoleum. There's a lot of insulative paper around ducting in uh, the 60s. That paper often had asbestos in, again, because it had binding qualities and it had. Insulative qualities
1: I and the fire fire resistant as well right fire, very resistant. fire resistant.
0: yeah like that's why i think it's one of the best products in your ceiling like if you can leave it in in your roof attic leave it because it's great insulative qualities and it's very very good for fireproofing but um just don't go up there
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure don't stir it around and it that vermiculite uh the government i think the canadian government in the early 80s was actually doing they had a, a rebate program and they were incentivizing people to put vermiculite in their attic space and then it was like 100,000 properties or something or more that went for it, right? Mm-hmm. And then they had to go around, turn around, and basically remediate it afterward years later.
0: Yeah, it's uh, the good thing about vermiculite, it has a very low percentage of asbestos in it, but because it's so what they call friable, which means the ability to get in the air, because it's so friable, even though it has a low percentage, you just touch it, and it yeah, in the air. So. But yeah, we removed a ton of vermiculite as well. And and they have been, a lot of times they would put vermiculite in cinder blocks to insulate the cavities as well. So you'll see it there sometimes too.
1: Oh, I didn't know that part. Interesting.
0: Yeah, it's all over the place. We could go on about that for
1: sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's good for the listeners to, to hear too. Anybody doing a rental or a flip, this is all great information. So from your first flip and then you took a break and then you went into your second one, did you still do a partnership and how did you structure that differently as you moved forward?
0: Yeah, for me, I get partners in it. So they do the cash financing and I do the work. And then we go in and split the profits depending on the, each scenario is slightly different. But at the end of the day, that's the simplest way for me. There is banking scenarios as well that work quite well. I just haven't got into that myself. I have good partners that I work with just, and it's easier with partners because we just buy cash. We just walk in, slap down cash. Here, We've gotten houses that we were slightly more than the other guys, but because it was an easy deal because there's no mortgage attached to it, they'll take it. So cash does help a bit. It's not the end of the world. Really the lowest dollar usually works, but so, yeah, that's how we typically do it. We just go in, they do the cash side. I do the work and, and so it's my own business and I just, I use basically they invest with me and they get a return on their
1: money. Yeah, for sure. And what, what would be an appealing property for you? What kind of properties do you look for? And what kind of, uh, I guess, make the property more appealing as a flipper and some reasons why you wouldn't buy that property?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Cause I think there's really, there's really three types of properties there's the the rip, rent, and run properties, which is, you know, people call, you know, like whatever they call it, quick flips or, you know, just paint or lipstick, whatever your wording is for it. So if you get a really good deal on a property that's just basically replacing the stuff that's there and, and leaving quickly, um, those fast flips, I mean, those are technically the best. Uh, they're hard to make money on, harder than you think, because your margins are also slimmer. So you're like, okay, I want to make about 10 grand in a month, month and a half that's being in a market where it's subject to two to 4% changes in any given week, 2% on half a million is $10,000, right? So it's not risk averse. It's good because when it's fast and you get it done, you make 10 grand and whatever month. Well, it'd be three months at the end of the day between the purchase and the sell and the reno. It's good, but you're basically buying yourself a job, right? Because a lot of the work you're doing yourself and you're going to get paid for that. So maybe... You make ten grand on the flip, but you also pay yourself six or seven thousand, or you make six or seven thousand because you don't charge for your time and put it into there. So those ones are sort of like your best ones. You're in and out. They're exciting, and honestly, it's so nice to do a project that's a month only. Like you just yeah. don't get tired of it. You just every day you show up, you're like, bam, I'm in. And things change and move so quickly. Love those projects. And then there's their sort of um, mid grade projects where you're gonna you're not gonna rip and run. You maybe do an addition. You do a full gut. You just you do everything. The cabinets. You just basically got the house and put together a new house. And those are fun, but those are like five, six months at the end of the day, plus your buy and sell time. They take permits, they take a little more finesse right across the board because it takes forever. Well, forever for me again, I can tell I'm not a patient dude, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so th- those types of projects are, you know, they're, they're great and they're using more, more profit. And then you got like sort of your bigger projects where maybe even add second stories, you just go for it, you take a house and you reshape it infills those types of projects where they're, they're just bigger they're a year they're, they're 18 months you're marginally safer you're not likely going to lose any money on that because it's just it's just so big and if you've done the math even if you only make two percent but still you know it's still not losing money so i find oddly enough those are safer projects they take longer but the unsafe part of it is let's say you get to 18 months and you only make like 10 fifteen thousand well that sucks you know what i mean but you're safer in the way that you're not going to lose money just because of the size of the project I mean, those are fun too. I mean, those are cool because you get super creative, right? You're just like, for me again, you know, I'm artsy. So I love the design phase. I love sort of working with stuff uh, to make it look different and more beautiful than it originally was. So, so for me, there's three types. You got your, your small rip and runs, you got your medium size, and then you got your sort of larger um, in the field slash ad second story stuff. And they're all great. They're all great depending on your personality type and your financial situation
1: yeah yeah for sure are you still offering like renos? so if someone were to reach out and say hey i would like to you know i've got a kitchen reno and stuff will, will you take on projects like that still
0: oh 100 percent. yeah like and the way the nature of the business uh is you can't be desperate to buy right so and we can talk about sort of what that side of things but you can't be desperate you have to get the right deal you have to have to get the right deal uh and let, we'll go back into that in a minute but because of that you're going to have gaps And again, I'm not a patient guy. Uh, I don't like gaps and I actually like renovating. I enjoy working with customers. I enjoy, you know, that side. And when you're doing flips, you're not seeing as much customers. You're kind of just dealing with trades and your realtor. So for me, absolutely. Yeah, I do. I do renovations in between. And I won't take more than two or three projects max. That's one thing I learned from my old company. It's just I do enough projects that I can get to each site every day if I need to. And that's my max. Yeah, but no, I, I absolutely I love renovating. It's it's a great business. It's just sort of when done right, it's, it's a really good relationship between a customer and yourself. And you're just really when done right, when the job goes right, you just kind of help them improve their life in ways that are important to them. You spend a lot of time in your house and to get someone from A to B from a place they don't like to a place they like and suits them. I love that. Enjoy it.
1: Yeah, that's great. It's definitely a difference there, like you're saying. When you're doing a flip, it's just trades people. You don't have a, a client you're working for, which can be obviously pros and cons to both, but it must feel good too when you get the right client to do those projects for. I love
0: the mix. I really do. I think it's healthy to have both for sure.
1: For sure. And then what what are you doing to like to find the right deal? Are you watching MLS? Are you doing off market stuff?
0: Uh like again, I'm I'm a huge believer in realtors for sure. I, I've been working with the lady for quite a while. She's done great. She digs stuff up. Um, she looks for stuff that's off market. I don't know. I mean, the best the best ones, in fact, most of what we bought, let me think about this. Most of what we bought has been a bank repo or an estate sale, actually. And it's not on purpose. Uh, it probably is for her. She's probably looking for those, but we have looked at houses that are not bank repos and not estate sales but they seem to be the ones that are distressed enough that buyers really um, on the most part, they just don't want to touch them. Cause it's like, you know, it's a destroyed unit. And for me, that's what I like. And I've heard other flippers do it differently where they just look for very specific things to, to flip. Like it's more rip and run. Like I said, um, you can see, I don't do a lot of rip and runs. I do sort of in the middle where we do quite a bit to our houses usually. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I mean, I'm a big believer. I do look at the real estate. I get stuff sent to me ultimately i i take the advice of the professional realtor but i also sort of throw in my two cents you have to have a good relationship with the realtor so you can throw things back and forth and both of you can listen uh and we do so i think that that's that's a huge thing as far as purchasing goes is just having that good relationship with the professional now and i mean if you're a realtor great but i'm a builder so i i'm a builder and a businessman and i'm not a realtor and and i i don't pretend to have strengths in those areas i can figure it out at the end of the day, but I'm not as good as you guys. So, and I think people should pay attention to that. Any courses you take on this, they'll tell you the same thing. Don't discount your realtor.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and like everything there's good and there's bad, not like everyone's going to add the value, you know?
0: Well, yeah, there's that too. I mean, you got to find a realtor who actually pays attention knows this side of the business. Um, that's true because, and, and I don't want to speak for you because you have more experience with this, but there's a lot of realtors who are good at some things and not others. Like some realtors are really good at making you, feel good about your house, but they may not really understand the value of that house. And they may not be getting you the best deal, right? Like dollars and cents wise Mm -hmm. guys like me, I I don't like, I can look at the house and see if it's terrible or good, but I I don't care about the feel good side of it. I just care about the dollars and cents and and I'll make it look good. That's my job. You know what I mean? So yeah. Finding a realtor who really gets the dollars and cents side of the business is, is uh, you can't do a flip without it. So that's a good point that not everybody is, is adept to that in the real estate business for sure
1: yeah 100 and then can we just dive in because you did mention it, the estate sale bank foreclosure maybe can you just kind of explain the process and because the, there's always a delay in that as well right and then a lot of times they're not going to allow you to put in like oh hey, well, i'm going to put a home inspection condition in that kind of thing either so can you kind of go through that
0: yeah Well, let's talk about um bank repos or repossessions if i'm using a term people aren't familiar with so basically when people default on a mortgage and the bank takes it back they have these houses and they put them out on the market. Typically the bank knows what their bottom number is. They know what they have to recover in that unit. And then they mix that with what the market is bearing, particularly at the time. And the reason I say that is sometimes you have to use a realtor to see, try and figure out what they are underwater on, on that. Cause then you'll know it's worth, I mean, you can throw a bid on everything, but everything takes up time. And you know, if you know, you can't get a good deal on it, you just walk on it and you'll never know. So what happens is they, they set a court date. Uh, they just accept bids. Nobody knows each other's bid. You can put whatever you want. Well, some you can. Sorry, some are as is. When they say as is, you can't do anything. You can't put an inspection in. I don't even know because I don't do that side of things. If you can do a subject to financing on that stuff, um, I don't
1: think no, no, you wouldn't be able to do that either.
0: Right. So, so those are basically you're up against people. You can't negotiate. You just have to throw in a price, and you don't know until they set the court date and they tell you what it is. So it's like. <laughs> Again, being impatient, I'm always like, oh, come on. And you're going to get one out of five. You're not going to get one out of one. Like you, you have to put numbers in on them and and not expect everything. It's kind of heart-wrenching. It's emotional. You know, estate sales typically are done through MLS or else they're done a bit off market. And uh, know, Corey, you have access to people like this when you have a big enough customer base. They might not just go on the market. They might just talk to the realtor. They talk to other realtors like Corey and say, look, we've got this. We know you have buyers that you need, feel free to fill me in on the actual details and it'll just be off market. Like that's one of the houses I got there. Just like, it's coming on. If you want to throw a price in before they throw it up, let us know. And we negotiated before it even got on the market. Another good value of realtors who have um,
1: the network for place. sure. Having the network right in place for sure.
0: Yeah. So I should have mentioned that earlier. Cause that has been our purchasing strategy on some, Some as well, and then some we just get off MLS, and you know MLS is sort of your last case scenario. It's not terrible; it's great. I'm glad we have the system of Realtor.ca and MLS, but it's your last way of doing it because you're sort of up against everybody else who can see it too, right? So
1: for sure. So days on market—if it's been sitting there, it's distressed. Could be an opportunity.
0: Yeah, we definitely look at days on market for sure because you know, and and then as well um, when you're buying a back to the uh, the repo houses. When you're buying a repossession, you look at how many bids are in. You can, you can see how many bids are in. That's what you can see. So if there's like two bids in 40 days, then you probably know they're low ball. You know, you probably know that if you want it, you go in 10% under and you'll get it. Yeah. Um, and, and in descending order of, of if you'll get it or not, by how far under you go. Banks don't like going under as much as people think. That's been my experience as well. Like, we've been punted out of bids before for bidding too low. So, like, you get these guys who are like, oh, yeah, man, you just bid way under, you bid like 100 grand another and you get some. No, you don't. They won't, they won't look at 100 grand under, just so you know. It just, wow, well, we've had no, not at all. Like, maybe no hundred. under max, somewhere in that range, you'll, you'll get considered because they'll just hold it. They'll hold it till the, bank, the market goes up again. They can say no if there's not a good enough deal. So, all the power's in their hands on that.
1: Yeah, they're not in the business of losing money. So they oh, want to make get their money back. They're pretty good at making money, those banks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so on a on a foreclosure, you're gonna obviously access the property, you're gonna walk it, you're gonna take notes, some pictures, and then you're gonna just that's your due diligence, is, is figuring out where you're gonna spend the money.
0: Yeah, you know what? With the advent of smartphones, and I know it sounds funny because anyone listening is like, well, they've been around forever. Well, they,
1: have,
0: <laughs> they haven't, you know. So when phones first came out with pictures that were garbage quality we would take a lot of pictures. We'd take like as many as you can. Like you can't take enough pictures. I have to really enforce that. Like more is better. Cause when you're going back and trying to figure out your numbers on a job and you don't, can't see if the ceiling's popcorn or flat, or you can't see if the electrical's over in this wall or now, you can't see, et cetera, et cetera, it impacts your job big time. And then you have these things that are sort of guesses and guessing is always, it either makes your price more or it makes your risk more. So, you know, you want to have as much detail as you can walking through. So I said that to say this video is great. Just video everything. Just walk through and video it. Talk to yourself, you know, video everything you can. And then you just go back through. I don't picture anymore. I just video. Love it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Smart. And I know you just finished a recent flip and you had some supply chain uh, issues that kind of delayed getting it on the market. Can you kind of go over some of that stuff? Some of the, maybe the lessons learned from that flip?
0: Yeah. I mean that and the one I did during COVID it's been, uh, And that was sort of what I was saying about stable markets or unstable markets. I prefer a stable market, and particularly when it comes to commodities. And commodities, you know, are things that basically are subject to the market as far as pricing goes. They don't have set pricing on the most part. So things like wood, lumber, lumber, see, almost everything that you use to renovate, almost everything is commodity-based. So as much as it might seem stable in one moment, the next moment it's not. And here's an example. During covid I bought a house, got a good purchase on it. This was an awesome, this was a one that came on the market, but we got at it before it actually hit MLS. Great purchase, got excited about it, COVID hit. I had done my, you know, my diligence in, in pricing out how much all the supplies were in this particular house I had added on 600 square feet. So now I have concrete, I have excessive amounts of concrete, uh, wood, uh, sheeting. And during COVID, if you weren't paying attention, just so you know, wood went up like 500%. Uh, And everything else kind of followed it up as a benchmark price, a a two by four stud pre-COVID was anywhere from my buying, like I get some sort of buying deals from places. I don't get a lot because I'm not big anymore, but I was anywhere from $1.80 to $2.25 for a two by four. And it went up to $11.
1: Yeah, I I was watching that, you know, occasionally going into Home Depot for stuff. And I'm like, I couldn't believe it. It's just insane.
0: And and then everything followed. So you're like, okay, the the lumber market goes up. And there was a reason for it. At the end of the day, we won't get into that. Uh, Like it made sense, but it just, it happens. Uh, But then everything else that followed, it didn't necessarily make sense. I think it was just like, hey, it's time to raise our prices, which is, you know, that's business, lot of supply and demand. But everything went up. That particular project, I think I had bid it at, I think I bid it at about two hundred eighty thousand dollars for the reno side of it, and it ended up being about three hundred and seventy. Wow! And that was me working my ass off and like doing a lot of work myself that I wouldn't normally do. So, and fortunately, the market uh, went up as well. Uh, so we were able to make money on that house. It didn't go up as much as the increase in the prices of materials did. So we didn't make our margin that we would originally bet on and I call it bet because we're just betting at the end of the day. We're just gambling. Right. (laughs) Uh, We are though. Like, I mean, there's no, it is what it is. That's why you have to do the lowest safest bet in order to stay in this business. So we end up making money on it. Like I said, because like I said earlier, bigger projects, you just, you have more of a pad. So because we lost a bit of money didn't mean we lost our shirt. We just lost a bit of money on what we should have made. And I, I didn't sleep some nights. <laughs> this <is> wow, <laughs> still up. I'm like, what is happening?
1: <laughs> For sure. Yeah, that's stressful. Uh,
0: and like things like plastics are a big deal. So if you're buying windows right now, almost all the window companies are a bit hit and miss. And I'm not picking on any of them. But you really have to nail them down on your timelines because there's something that happened with polyurethane slash plastic industry that really got put behind in the supply chain. I mean, a lot of things did, but particularly that. So a lot of people are struggling with that. And then because they got behind all their stuff got behind. So on my last particular project, with, which wasn't technically in the COVID zone, we still were dealing with some supply line stuff that, you know, originally they had said, you know, two to four weeks or four to six weeks. And ended up being like four months.
1: Yeah. Um, crazy.
0: And, and what that speaks to is like, there's two seasons that I like to sell in. I like to sell in in the fall. And I like to sell in the spring. Those are the seasons, early spring and early fall so I like to have my houses ready at the end of August I like to have my house is ready sort of May and then it just shot me right into Christmas like it shot mm-hmm. me from you know this timeline of October which is late I'd rather have it ready and I you know I was pushing September 15th and it ended up going for sale November 20th or something like that and so we just sold it uh, we just got a sorry. we just got a deal on it um don't
1: ever count your chicken still <laughs> eggs either. by the way that's uh, right but we have
0: a conditional sale on it now, which is fine. You have to be patient, but it does screw you up, messy. So I, the long walk on that is that supply lines do matter. You have to just don't take people at their word, even though they're great people; they're doing their best too. But you have to really figure out your worst case scenario for supply stuff when you're renovating a house, because like that house was ready to go October 10th, October 10th, yeah, yeah. and it, we couldn't sell it till the end of November, and that is a big deal. That time of year, particular, is a a very detrimental change. In the sales of your house because people don't want to move between November and January 30th, even February. Uh, if you ever moved in that time of year, you know that people just are not interested unless they have to.
1: For sure. Yeah. 100%. I, I just want to circle back. So you had said 600 square foot addition. Now, that's probably a reason, right? I think it is it 800 square feet where the city needs a development permit.
0: Uh, you know what? I had to get a development permit on that one. So I don't. Oh, remember. you did? Hey. I don't, okay. I don't remember. What the deal was on that size? Um, I just wanted—I had a bungalow, and I bought it at twelve hundred, and I wanted to sell it over a million. And, and sort of with my research, if I got it up to sixteen hundred, eighteen hundred square feet, the the value of the house went way up. I uh, see. Went, went into that zone where you know obviously a bungalow that's eighteen hundred square feet is like awesome, awesome. So I we did that, and you know building out like additions, just simple math, like building out a house. Although things are changing quickly, but. The renovations are somewhere between 180. If you're paying people, if you're not doing it yourself, it's somewhere between 180 to 250 bucks a square foot for a gut reno, and then you get somewhere around 600 per square foot for housing, right? So there's a gap in there. So adding on another 600 square feet and it costs you 250 a square foot to do it, and you can sell it at 600, increases your profit a lot. Uh, it's not easy to do. It takes a while. But it's one of the biggest things you can do on those larger flips to really add value to house is just add house to the house. Not easy, takes a while, but it it makes a big difference.
1: For sure. And are you running into any like uh issues trying to find quality people to work with, contractors or trades to work for you with the shortage?
0: Yeah, I'd say that's an Alberta problem. You know, I'm from BC, uh northern BC. And there's it's the opposite issue up there. There's not a lot of work up there. There's some, but it's not, it's not a lot. So Finding workers isn't hard. I'd say it's almost balanced up there in that way. If you want work, you can get it, but you just, you got to work hard to get the right interview with the right person. Coming to Alberta, I've been here since 2002, and I don't think I've ever seen a time where I felt the labor market felt stable in any way, shape or form. And so to answer your question, I think Alberta is sort of typical for that. There's a lot of people who, you know, come and go in Alberta. So there's sort of easy come, easy go. The labor market right now is as shrunk as it's ever been. I don't know why. It's really weird. Like there's a lot of people out of work. Unemployment rate's pretty high, particularly by Alberta standards. I think it's 5.8% still or something like that. It was up to eight over COVID. And, you know, a healthy labor market's around three or 4%. So it's there is a lot of people who are technically out of work right now. Not really sure why when you put ads out, you're not getting overwhelmed with people. Maybe... Um, and, and certainly, I mean, Corey, you talked to a lot of people too. So I know it's a bit of a loaded question because like all sectors are dealing with the same thing where it just feels like it's a tight labor market for me being smaller, having a bigger company, you know, in the reference, we did 10 million a year in sales sort of thing on one of our biggest years. So that was the company I had before, you know, right now it'll be, you know, I don't even know how to consider sales, but I'll flip like three houses a year and do like three, four innovations and, and some other projects. In some ways, it's easier because the people that I work with are people that are I know. Uh, we get to have good relationships. We get to know each other. We go for coffees and beers outside of work. That's what I love about it. And I also do mostly sub traits. Like I, I maybe will use people I know, um, you know, students or people who just are out of work that I know in my, my network to do a lot of this work beside me where we're doing demo or I need a helper. But I sub out a lot of it. If not, I would say most of it. And yeah. so I don't really hire staff. I have very little staff. I do have a few, but I really have some great relationships with some great people who I can call up. And if they're not busy, they, they typically come. And usually I have enough warning that I can give them warning so they can slot me in. So I think I would answer that question is over the years, I've learned that like, you know, hang out with the people, get good relationships with people that are awesome. Um, not to be fake, but because they're awesome because they're awesome. So don't be scared to develop a relationship with awesome people who you connect with, and then just keep developing those relationships. And um, right now, I don't have an issue. I think that I I really enjoy the people I work with. And I feel like if I'm in an emergency or pinch, they would come and help me sort of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Great explanation. That's awesome. For sure, Alberta has been very cyclical over the years, and transient with workers.
0: Transient is probably that word, because I don't want to get into being insulting. Like, you know, because it's not insulting. That's just the nature of a lot of people who come over, particularly from the East. They just come over to pound off work and go home. But with that comes this this lack of commitment. It, you know, if, if shit sucks, they're out. You yeah. know, and shit sucks sometimes. Like you know, just <laughs> help it. Like, stuff just doesn't work out the way we want sometimes. So it's nice to have more commitment, but you got to do what you got to do to get by, right?
1: 100%. Okay, we're getting close to the end here. I'm just going to hit you with some more personal quick uh, rapid response questions <laughs> okay and, okay so uh, what's an app or a software you use either for your business or personally that you couldn't live without
0: i use the google everything i love it it speaks to itself i just build spreadsheets for my accounting now i used to use sage i used to use uh, quickbooks i've used a lot of different programs for customer relationship management et cetera, et cetera. Being the size I'm at now, I I just build my own spreadsheets and I use Google for everything. I absolutely love it. It just, it speaks to itself so well. It works across all my devices properly every time. Yeah. So happy with it.
1: Have you tried the chat GTP that's kind of caught fire? No, it's, the, it's an AI platform. So you basically ask it anything and it'll just, you could say, uh, I need a job posting for a renovation contractor. And it just spits out all the information you want. Uh, oh, really? Oh, it's Who's crazy. That? So it's called Chat GTP, but there's a waitlist now uh, to actually even use it. There was like over a million people that basically bogged the system down, trying to log in. And uh, I was one of the lucky ones that got in before. And uh, it's mind blowing what this thing can do. Yeah, it's going to you know, change.
0: For marketing, like I kind of suck at marketing, but right now I don't need a lot of it. Uh, it's never been my strength in all my businesses. Let's say if I have a weakness, it's marketing. So that would be a pretty smart way to go for a guy like me, for sure. Oh
1: yeah, you can say what's five uh, issues that most renovation contractors run into if you wanted to post a video, and it just spits it out all the information, and then here you go, here's your content. Mm. Like it's, it's pretty cool.
0: That's cool, especially for a little guy. It just it cuts out a lot of work, right?
1: Definitely. Uh, what's a? You have a favorite book or movie?
0: Uh, well, I mean, I'm a movie buff. I love movies. I mean, I watch everything from old movies like. You know, we just recently watched Apocalypse Now again, and you know, we're constantly me and my kids and my wife are constantly going through and picking over apart. Uh, probably the most recent. I'm actually trying to to read. Uh, is it uh, To Kill a Mockingbird? I'm trying to read it. I can't do it, so I'm not good at that one. Reading is not my forte. I do like reading from time to time, but it usually ends up being business books. Like yep. the Millionaire Mind was a really good book that I read that impacted me. It's about 10 years old. It's just a psychological study of millionaires and how they it just picks up general tendencies and traits of millionaires without actually making statements about what you should or shouldn't do. So I I actually really enjoyed that. That was probably one of my favorite books ever, you know, as far as shows go, I mean, I I love the advent of like Netflix and prime and Disney plus and all that stuff where you can just binge stuff. It's kind of unhealthy because you end up doing it. Yeah. Even the star Wars, like, man, I didn't know how much I liked star Wars until Disney plus came out and they put out the Mandalorian and they put out all these other shows. So
1: for sure. And then you said you're a musician, so are you still doing uh, musical stuff?
0: A little (laughs) bit. A little bit. So my original, when we moved to Calgary, we were in an original band doing, uh, it's kind of like, I guess, alternative rock in the early 2000s. And I really, really enjoyed it. We were talking to record labels and we were touring a little bit and doing that kind of stuff. But sort of, the you know, I uh, for various life reasons, I stopped doing that. But then we ended up having a live music pub, so I was able to, like, do a lot of music. Uh, we recently, COVID sort of wiped us out, so we shut that down. So since then, you know, I've been sort of focused on, I write a lot, but I'm trying to change myself a bit. As a 47-year-old, it's kind of hard. But I'm trying to sort of adapt to a newer style of music with a little more beats and bass. So I'm trying to figure out, I'm a guitarist and a singer. And so I'm trying to figure out how to, get into doing some produced music like that. So that's my new thing as I'm trying to work my way into that world, but don't seem as quick as I used to. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Okay, and then for our listeners that want to get a hold of you, find your business, that kind of thing, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: I have a website. So my company is Statera, S-T-A-T-E-R-A, which is just a Latin word that means balance, kind of means a lot to me to try and keep myself centered. Um, Stateracontracting.com and then it's uh, stateracontracting at gmail.com.
1: Okay. And are you on Instagram? Those types of things. Uh
0: no, I know you're gonna give me crap for that. No, I'm not. <laughs> That's right.
1: I will. Yeah. You, I will. You should make one for your company and then start posting some content. Would be good.
0: I know. I'm bad at marketing. I need people to beat me up like you to get better at it for sure.
1: <laughs> okay, and uh, so we'll have links in the show notes as well. So, hey man, you shared tons of great info. Thanks so much for being on the show.
0: Yeah, man, I appreciate going on it. This is tons of fun. This is uh it's nice to be able to share and, and also listen to your podcast and hear other people in the industry sort of talk about and I like the way you kind of go through it. You break it down a lot, which I love. I love hearing the details on the details. So yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. And you were considering starting a podcast. You still got that on your mind to to do in the future?
0: Uh, totally. Absolutely, a hundred percent, but I'm gonna need a little more. I need to figure out how to do it. I don't think I could do it as good as this,
1: that's for sure. Okay, once you have it going, I'll put a link in the show notes for that as well so people can tune in. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a master home inspection certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is coreypeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks.